This is Pridecast Live on KPFK 90.7 FM. I hope everyone is enjoying this 11-hour special program commemorating Pride. I am Vic Jaramie. The next show is called Politics, Pride, and Power by host Matt Breen. Matthew interviews leading queer politicians of today with guests Pennsylvania Representative Brian Sims, Pennsylvania Representative Malcolm Kenyatta, and political analyst and radio host Danielle Moody Mills. So enjoy. Hello, Los Angeles. Welcome to Pride, Politics, and Power. My name is Matthew Breen. I'm a journalist and editor working in queer media for many years now in Los Angeles and in New York, where I'm coming to you from now. In the past few years, we've seen marriage equality become the law of the land. We've witnessed the ascendance of the transgender rights movement. We've seen the first gay viable presidential candidate, and just this month, we saw the confirmation by the Supreme Court that existing civil rights law protects the rights of LGBTQ workers. Quote, an employer who fires an individual merely for being gay or transgender defies the law, end quote, wrote Justice Neil Gorsuch in the very surprising 6-3 court majority opinion. It's also Pride season. Today we have three amazing guests to talk about queer politics and power, including two out members of the Pennsylvania General Assembly, Representative Malcolm Kenyatta and Representative Brian Sims. But my first guest is a one of a kind. To my knowledge, Danielle Moody is the only black queer woman hosting progressive talk shows. She's the host of the daily podcast show Woke AF. She's an MSNBC regular, and she is a warrior of the resistance. Danielle, welcome to the show. I am so delighted you could join me today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Good. It's always fun to talk to you, so I'm really excited about this conversation. Me too. I was not feeling my pride this year because we're we're a couple months into the federal government's absolute, absolute botching of the COVID-19 pandemic. And we're several weeks into protests over the deaths of so many black Americans at the hands of like a racist police apparatus. So I'm angry and exhausted. Um, and I've been trying to think about whether history is informative in, in this instance and um, whether, whether the past can instruct us here. And tell me how you look to the past and, 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 and what, that, what that does for you in a moment like this. is incredibly informative in this moment because, you know, we have to remember that right now we're living in the midst of multiple pandemics, right? And what folks are experiencing now that are out in the streets and have been out in the streets is that they've had enough, right? Just as uh, the queer folks that were sitting at the bar, you know, trying to uh, enjoy themselves, right? In, in a space where people don't want them to be themselves, they found this little nook, right, where they could show up as their full selves. And then in comes the police, right, to literally beat them back into submission. And I think that in this particular moment that we are living in, we have all collectively had enough as LGBTQ people, as as Black people. You know, I I want to be able to exist in a black body and be fully free and liberated. I want to be able to experience what is embezzled on so many buildings in this country, what is freedom and justice for all, right? right? right. But the the living at the intersection of multiple identities um, that are oppressed identities doesn't allow for that to happen. And so, you know, at this particular moment, 
it is important for us to have this collective uh, sense of enough and the pushback that we are seeing. Because I realize, you know, what, what many have said is that no one will give you freedom, right? You have to take it. No one is going to liberate you. You have to liberate yourself. And, you know, and I, and I am consistently reminded, you know, of, of the quote from James Baldwin that ping-pongs around in my head on a regular basis, which is, you know, to be a Negro in this country and to be semi-conscious is to, you know, is to be in a state of rage almost all the time, yeah. right? And so the, the rage is appropriate. And what gives me hope, I will say, is that the rage is not just within the black community. It's not just within the queer community. But what we're seeing with the people in the street right now is that there are multiple hues and layers of, of diversity, ethnicity, and culture that have had enough, right? right? right. All 50 states are, are protesting uh, at this moment. Protests are being seen around the globe on, on you know, almost every continent. Um, and so that provides hope, right? But the, I think that the, the past, you know, provides us with the energy that we need to continue to move forward. You know, I was talking with a friend about that. Uh, he brought up the, the Rodney King riots. I'm old enough to remember those, and so is he. And mm. um, just the, the literal difference in the way that the protesters look then versus now gives me some hope that that the crisis has been recognized and the cause has been embraced by a lot more people than just just those mm-hmm. black folks who were at the most like dire mercy of of law enforcement. Mhm. Yep. There was this month uh a couple really great glimmers of hope and one of those was the sort of change in the um from the past in terms of the number of in, in different kinds of people who are showing up to protest. Um but I, I loved just the images of the Black Lives Matter protest in Brooklyn. It was a gorgeous sea of people. And it was amazing to see uh, 15,000 peaceful protesters show up for a cause that a few years ago people would have said, what? What, what do you mean? <laughs> you know, I don't know if you witnessed any of that. Yeah, um, unfortunately, I not in person. Right. Um, but, but the images, the videos that came out uh, of the Black uh, Trans Lives Matter protests were extraordinary. 15,000 people showing up for a community that has been so marginalized and so invisibilized uh, by the media, by policies. It was a beautiful thing. You know, I, I think that also uh, what we have to understand when we say that Black Lives Matter is that all Black Lives Matter, right? And that it is not, there, there is not something separate, meaning that, oh, Black Lives Matter, but, you know, asterisk, if you happen to be trans or you happen to be queer or you happen to be whatever, you know, we'll come back and get you. And so um, the outpouring uh, of, of support, uh, of love and attention to a community that has often been neglected within the LGBTQ community mm-hmm. um, is, was, was beautiful. And I think it is, is progress, right? Because yeah. on top of the names, of, uh, on top of the hashtags, right, the people, right, the brothers and sisters and loved ones uh, that have become hashtags that make it to the headlines, there are countless black trans women who do not, who are misgendered mm-hmm. after their murders, who we will never know about, right, whose murders go unsolved and are, are uninvestigated to begin with. And so bringing attention to that at, the, at, 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 at this particular 
particular moment is incredibly important. Because if we're going to list all people, we need to list all people. There was another moment of cause for celebration, and this one was a big surprise. I think everybody was sort of really, you know, gritting their teeth, awaiting the Supreme Court ruling, upheld the idea that existing civil rights law includes uh, protections for uh, LGBTQ workers. It washed away, you know, over half of the state's discrimination laws that allow for gay or trans people to be fired from their jobs if they are, are gay or trans or even suspected to be by their employers. What did you feel when you heard the, uh, the ruling or, or read the ruling? Matt, I'll tell you, I burst into tears. I was out, you know, uh, uh, working out. I was out on a run, and a thing comes across my phone. And I knew that the ruling was coming out. And like you, I was just preparing for the worst because what is more bad news in 2020? Right. It's, you know, it, it, it's just become the norm. For the, for, for the time that I have been on the front lines on multiple justice movements, um, the amount of writing, reports, and things that, you know, I uh, have been a part of, um, I couldn't believe that it had finally come, right? Um, you know, I remember when people had said, like, so excited in 2015 when marriage equality became the law of the land, right? Yeah. And I said, that is, it was great, and it was exciting for folks that want to get married, right? But for everybody else. Um, we still had a long way to go. And workers' protection was one of them. The fact that, you know, up until this week, that in 32 states or more, you could be fired for simply being who you are mm -hmm. was ridiculous. It was outrageous. And if you want to talk again, again, about part of our community that is completely marginalized, trans people in so many different states and so many different spaces have been forced, you know, into low-income, uh, uh, unstable economic uh, environments because of who they are, because of how they, because of how they, because of um, how people perceive them to be. Yeah. Right. And so they have been forced into being economically, economically unstable. Mm -hmm. Right. Not being able um, to 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 get jobs that provide the health care and the benefits and the support that they need. And so now the the opening. That this that this allows uh, for so many for so many people that have been completely and totally sidelined. It is a beautiful thing, and for so many people that I have had the pleasure to to just offer a little bit of of, of, of my help with, you know, from the Center for American Progress to you know HRC um, to you know the, the Trans Law Center to so many different. ACLU, so many different organizations that have been working on this for decades. Um, it was amazing. And it was, and it, frankly, it was like a B12 shot that all of us really needed right now right. to not give up on America, to not give up on America. It's true. And, and it's, frankly, I ask myself every day whether or not America is worth fighting for. Yeah. 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 Um, it, um, I think it'll have so many knock-on effects. It, it, it seems very likely to be um, the cause for reversing the Trump uh, Trump uh, ruling or or decision that um, that medical uh, care can be denied trans folks from last week. Right. I mean, I think you'll see resonance in housing discrimination. I hope there's an avalanche of lawsuits that that just are immediately. You know, ruled upon based on based on the Supreme Court ruling um, in favor of people who have been discriminated against um, 
in all of those areas. It's interesting that you mentioned marriage equality. I don't know if it's the fact that we are, you know, social distancing as a, as a nation or some of us. Right. Or that or that the imagery is not as um, immediate. But I, I do feel like the, the marriage equality decision came with a bigger party. <laughs> and I wonder if it's just because you can literally see couples embracing people on the job is, 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 is a less sort of visually primed sort of image uh, for celebration. But this, this is ultimately a lot more consequential. And I wonder if we have to sort of adjust how we're thinking about these two monumental victories. Yeah, and I think that we also have to remember who was in the White House when the Supreme Court decision came down and that Barack Obama and the Obama administration turned the turned the White House rainbow that yeah, day. Yeah, that was a beautiful right? sight. In, in celebration of this amazing victory. And so, yes, this decision is a lot more consequential to the economic stability of the LGBTQ community, but we're also battling so much evil coming out of the Trump administration that, like, it, it, it's in one breath we, we applaud and in the next breath recognize that we have so much further to go. That this administration, like you said, you know, but a week ago, during the midst of a global pandemic, a global health pandemic, saw fit to try and deny trans people health service. So I, I think that our response and our celebration is one that is tempered because we know what we're up against. Um, let's switch to presidential politics for a moment. When we were in the pre-presumptive Biden nomination, did you have a sense of which candidate would have been best on queer issues, policy-wise or gut-wise? Who, apart from maybe your favorite choice, who do you think would have been best on queer issues? You know, that's an interesting question because I think that um, there isn't one person other for me that sticks out other than Warren. Um, and even though Buttigieg is, you know, is a gay man, I also recognize that he uh is actually a conservative uh-huh. uh in in many ways and had just recently come out um and so i think that practically if you're looking at, at at you know what who has an agenda uh and plans uh for for equity for the lgbtq community i would have said uh warren um biden in this respect look biden is an empathetic figure and he was ahead of the curve he was ahead of barack obama uh, in, in terms of in terms of his you know acceptance, mm-hmm. um, uh, and so I, I I don't think that Biden would you know would or or, or will be bad in any which way, um, but you know at this particular point you know we need more than just empathy. I need more than just words. We need you know we need policy change, uh, and, and so um, if I had had my choice, it would have been Warren. I think the plan currently is to announce a VP pick in August, but do you have a, a favorite for that role? Yeah, Stacey Abrams. Yeah, Stacey Abrams um, has, you know, my top three uh, have been Stacey Abrams, Val Demings, and Kamala Harris. Interesting. Uh, those are my top three picks, and, they, you know, they're for, they're for different reasons. Um, and uh, they just all happen to be black women because black women are the base and the backbone of this country and the Democratic Party. And mm-hmm. so um, for me, all three of them provide an opportunity to signal real progress given what their focus has been on in their life's work. 
that's about our time for now. But I, I want you to take one moment and put a magic wand in your hand. If you could change one thing about pride, what would it be? That it wouldn't last just a month. Love it. Same magic wand. One systemic change to politics. Taking money out of it. Um, I think that's a brilliant answer because I agree with you. Um, thank you, Danielle. Where, <laughs> where can we find you? Um, tell me about you. You have several shows. I mentioned one, but tell me about your shows and where we can find you on social media. Sure, you can find me on social media. I am always on Twitter at dcsense. D e e t w o c e n t s, and it is the same on Instagram. You can find my daily progressive political talk show, Woke AF Daily, on patreon.com backslash Woke AF. You can also listen to my weekly podcast with my friend Foray, which is entitled Democracy-ish. You can get that wherever you get your podcast. And then I also do one-on-one interviews with some of the biggest change makers and innovators and activists and authors on my weekly show, PM Mood. And you can get that anywhere you get your podcast as well. Woo! It's a lot of stuff. I heartily recommend following Danielle wherever you can find her. Um, thank you so much. Uh, this has been great. Um, I'm still, it's always a delight to talk to you, and I hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you, and happy Pride. Thank you. you. And everyone listening. This is Pridecast Live on KPFK 90.7 FM, presented by KPFK, The Blunt Post with Vic, and the Stonewall Democratic Club. It's an 11-hour special Pride program to commemorate Pride Month. And the program that you're listening to right now is called Politics, Pride, and Power by host Matthew Breen. Hello, Los Angeles. Welcome back to Pride, Politics, and Power. My name is Matthew Breen, and we are joined now by History Maker. Representative Malcolm Kenyatta was the first openly gay black man elected to Pennsylvania State uh, to electoral office. Welcome, uh, Representative Kenyatta. It's really nice to have you here today. So happy to be here, man. Thank you for having me. As we're taping this, we are several months into the government's, federal government's like complete botching of the COVID-19 pandemic. We're several weeks into protests over the death of so many black Americans at the hands of a racist police apparatus. I, I can only imagine how you're feeling, but I'm feeling angry and exhausted. So I wanted to check in with you and see how you're feeling in this Pride Month. Well, you know, it's, it's certainly a lot of pain, but I think there's also a lot of promise in this moment. I think as we talk about police reform, we talk about reforming some of the, you know, these, these structural issues that exist in the country. And I think it's important to remember that, like, police reform is an LGBTQ issue. Mm-hmm. Um, this entire movement for LGBTQ equality was born out of folks pushing back, fighting back against a brutal police regime that was criminalizing a segment of our community that still, in many respects, exists on the margin. And I think as now we're having important conversations about race and about justice more broadly, about police budgets, I think the underlying question that, you know, we always have to have to ask is, you know, what, what, or what have the police, frankly, been upholding, right? And there's been these majoritarian, straight, white, male, landowning, um, sort of majoritarian cultural 
uh, views and laws that so often did not include the voices, perspectives, or lived experience of folks who exist on the margin. Yeah. Just take, for example, the way we, in so many ways, like criminalize poverty, right? Cr- criminalize people sleeping in parks and other things that are outgrowths of a broken economic system. Um, and you think about some of the victories we just had this week where LGBTQ folks all across the country until literally a couple of days ago um, in large parts of the country could still be fired simply because they put up a picture of their family on their desk that their boss didn't like, right? And so, yes, we're having a conversation about police reform. It's an incredibly needed um, conversation. Um, That conversation is inextricably linked with with pride, but I think we're also having, starting to have at least, I think the deeper, harder conversation about our structures. I try to think, you know, I'm an optimist by temperament and and the world's been sort of (laughs) challenging that lately, but, um, you know, I am thinking about all those uh, folks who were feeling angry and exhausted at that divey little mafia run bar in the West Village in 1969 when the, the, you know, the Stonewall Rebellion began. And I just cannot imagine what those people at that time would have felt about the Supreme Court decision that came down this month, as you referenced, letting you know the world know that existing civil rights law protects LGBTQ people from workplace discriminations. I, I can't imagine that any of them would have fathomed that, or the idea that we're talking about defunding or changing how we think about policing. It would have blown their minds. Absolutely. And I think that that's there's still so much further. We, we need to reform so many of our systems. But I think it's also, it is important, right, to, to take moments along this to to recognize how far we've, we've come. Mm-hmm. Certainly, you know, in the broader context, you can look at it how much further we have to go, but you also do have to look at where we've come from. And I think the movements we're seeing right now um, in the moment that we're in really is building on that legacy of everyday people standing up and demanding that our country actually be the thing that we so often say we are, mm-hmm. right? That we actually be the place where liberty, justice, um, where freedom, where all those things are actually real in our lifetime. That, you know, this idea that we were created equal um, is transformed into the broader application of folks actually being treated equally. Yeah, we have a, we have a lot to do, but you know, it, it, it gives me some, you know, some level of peace knowing that there are folks who fought back before and who've won a lot of the rights that we now take for granted. And there's a lot of what's happening right now, which, you know, the next generation will end up taking for granted, you know, and that's a good thing because so many of young LGBT kids are going to grow up in a world and not know a world where you can be fired simply because of who you are, how you identify, mm-hmm. um, or at least you have recourse if people, you know, mm-hmm. choose, choose to do that. That'll be their their new normal, and that's what we're fighting for. Because you know, we can't just go back to what got us here. Um, we have to start envisioning um, and imagining a world that's different from the one that we live in, and then do the really, really incredibly difficult work of making that world a reality. And we're seeing that now with 20 plus days of folks in the streets demanding that we do a lot of things we've needed to do for a long time um, as it relates to public policy. 
I think it takes uh, lawmakers like yourself, too, who draw the connections that a lot of us don't necessarily automatically see between policy and the law and the actual lives of, uh, of the folks they impact. You've talked a lot about how policing and the environment and minimum wage are LGBTQ issues. That, that just seems integral to, 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 the work, to your work as I know it, drawing those connections for people who don't see them. Yeah, I think that that's, you know, so, so much of this, I really believe in this idea of, you know, of, of, of co-governance, right? Uh-huh. Um, you know, our citizenship requires a lot more than us just showing up to vote. That's an important part of it. But I, I make that note because there are so many different ways that we have to be engaged. Um, and also, in that same respect, so many different ways that our engagement is so much more valuable than, than, than we recognize. And so, you know, I think the other connection that I've been trying to make, you know, recently as well is you look at all the folks who've come out into the streets, you know, 20 plus days, as as I've said, of folks protesting, Mm -hmm. there's a direct connection between a lot of the progress that we've made on, on issues, um, connected directly to those protests. And I know that, you know, so often folks don't believe in the power that they have as as young people Um, and and as, you know, folks maybe not so young, but the power that folks have as citizens when they just step up and and decide enough is enough. It really can change the tide um, on a variety of different issues. And I think we're seeing that right now. I was waiting for Trump to tweet out that he was claiming that it was a sort of success that the Supreme Court ruled in favor of, of workplace protections for LGBTQ people. But, you know, we all knew Trump isn't pro-LGBTQ, bec- primarily because he doesn't actually have any policy convictions. Um, uh, I just wondered if you if you anticipated a specific response coming out of that ruling from, from the White House. You know, I, I don't actually. I have no more faith or hope <laughs> president that he will ever do um anything that's that that's just objectively right for 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 the country Mm -hmm. and that's based off of his own behavior you know he has botched the response to covid 19 Mm -hmm. um he called it a hoax for for months that china was doing a doing a great job for, for 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 months um just completely dismantled our ability to respond to these types of threats um, abroad and domestically, um, you know, put people against each other at a time where we all needed to be rowing in the same direction, um, you know, politicize things that are as important um, as wearing a mask. Uh, to, I think he said the other day or something, you know, people wearing a mask to signal some type of anger with him as opposed to wearing a mask right. because. We know it's one of the things that will put us on a path. We don't have a second, third, and fourth wave of mm. this thing while we, you know, wait for the research to continue to develop. Um, and he did all those things during something as deadly serious as the COVID-19 pandemic. But it's really in line with what he's done all along, where he says one thing and he does another. You know, he promised to be the most pro-equality uh, you know, most pro-equality 
president of all time, but yet he's done things like demonize and try to remove our trans uh, trans service members. He's done things like take away um, with a with a recent rule around Obamacare um, trans protections. He's you know done done things big and small that have really been damaging to the, the, the community as well as like going as far as to like take every reference to LGBTQ like off the White House websites, right? Like mm-hmm. this is a, a petty small person that's much too small for the big job that he holds. And, you know, he's, he's weak and he's a loser and we really do need to get somebody in who's seriously dedicated to moving the country forward, particularly during times as serious as the ones we face ourselves in right now. But, you know, he's too busy tweeting and everything else. And it's just incredibly, incredibly disappointing. I believe that you are an endorser of Joe Biden. Yep. I wanted to talk a little bit about the the vice presidential pick. Do you have in mind someone, regardless of who your favorite is, who would have been perhaps the best on queer issues specifically? Let me, let, me, let me answer that this way. We had an incredibly talented field of folks who, who, who ran for office um, from a variety of different backgrounds, from a mm-hmm. variety of different um, live, lived experiences. And, um, you know, ultimately, we're at a place now where we have a nominee. Um, and so Vice President Biden... You know, I said he would and really has brought the party together, um, be it the unity commissions with uh, Bernie Sanders on issues that are incredibly important um, or be it the work that he's done with every single former uh, person who's run in this race. Mm -hmm. This is going to require an all hands on deck approach. You know, not only has Trump been historically bad, I've kind of been joking that 2020 in particular is like committed to being remembered at all costs. <laughs> and so kind of like everything that could happen has happened in 2020. Um, we are now technically in a recession. We're still figuring out how we are going to, um, in particular, our small businesses, how those small businesses are going to be able to um you know, begin to rebuild. There are millions and millions of Americans who've lost their lost their jobs. There's a you know a pending um, mortgage and uh, eviction crisis mm-hmm. um, on the horizon. Um, there are tons and tons of issues. Not to mention folks like me who work at the state level who have budgets coming up, and we have incredible deficits and more and more need as it relates to the government services and the safety nets that, that, that we provide. And so we're going to need every single person who threw their head in the ring to run. Um, we're going to need them. Um, you know, some of them obviously will remain in the Senate. Some of them, I, you know, assume will will end up uh, having some role in the administration. Um, some of them, like Stacey Abrams right, right now, who didn't run for president, but was very much part of the conversation, is doing critical things as it relates to voting rights. Mm-hmm. You know, Sue went to Georgia for the, the horror that we saw there on election day, um, helping to build an infrastructure around the country. Um, and so this is an all-hands-on-deck situation. And I think all Democrats and, you know, people people of conscience, whether you're a Democrat, Republican, or Independent, um, who's looking at what's going on right now, 
we all need to focus on making sure Joe Biden is the next president of the United States. You know, and I think he'll make sure this, that he's surrounded by people in his administration who come from a variety of different perspectives and can give him the best possible advice and really work with him to not only get us back to where we were before Trump, right? Because um, we can't go back to normal. Normal got us here. Right. But to begin to actually, um, you know, restore the soul of the nation, as he says, and make sure that all these, all those documents, so many of them written in a hot summer here in Philadelphia, that those things are actually real in our lifetime. If you had a magic wand and you could do, if you mm, could change okay. something about, I'm going to ask you two questions. If you could change something about pride, what would it be? in general the you know and we're having this conversation on juneteenth and we, we talked a little bit before about um <clears throat> about sort of the uh, origins of pride mm-hmm. so often black and brown folks particularly black trans non-binary folks have done a lot of the work um that's moved us forward a lot of the work that's moved us forward but when you know but if you ask folks to close their eyes and think about LGBTQ folks, the image that often comes to mind is a straight, cis, white guy. Um, Again, straight, cis, white, in many cases, well-off white guy. And that's completely reductionist in terms of what our community actually looks like and who the folks in our community actually are. We represent every age, every race, every religion, um, every community. And so... I think when you're a part of a group like the LGBTQ community that has historically and even presently um, has experienced the type of discrimination that we face, it's incumbent on us that we root out discrimination as it shows its head in our community. And so in Pride and in the LGBTQ community more broadly, it's very cis, very white, very well-off, and that's deeply, deeply problematic. Um, and it's at all of our major organizations. I mean, you just had, um, uh, I just learned this on a town hall that I, that I, um, that I did on a, our panel discussion we had on, on MSNBC the other day, mm-hmm. um, that, that, you know, Grindr has taken away the feature where folks can filter out folks by, by, by rates, right? It's like, mm, we already knew that sex discrimination has been an issue for a long time, racial sex discrimination, um, and that the issue that I just, uh, you know, explained about how exclusionary the LGBT community so often is, we've known that these issues have existed for a long time. Mm -hmm. And that's hopefully what this moment is calling us to, right? To have those deeper conversations about things like this, about our structures that are broken and about this sort of way that we've set up every aspect of this country to almost exclusively cater to the, to, to the whims, needs, and uh, tastes of, of cisgender or white guys. Same magic wand. If you were to change one element about, just broadly speaking, about how we do politics in this country. I really would wish we would have folks stop giving away their power. We as citizens, all of us, have so much more power than we think we do. And we've limited so much of our imagination to simply what person is elected to this version of campaigns and campaigning that 
is basically us, you know, the media following a bunch of rallies. We see it with folks giving away their power in terms of in terms of not showing up to vote. Folks, you know, ought to be showing up to vote and using that that part of their voice to make sure that as decisions are being made, that they have a voice in those in those decisions and who's ultimately uh, going to be in those roles to execute on those decisions. But also. You know, we need folks to be block captains and to um, tutor kids in their neighborhoods and to do all the small things that we as neighbors ought to come to expect from one another and all the small things that shift the outcomes in our community that aren't just tied to what laws are passed. Folks have just so much more power than they think. Every time we recognize it, big things happen and big things change. And so, you know, I hope that this is really sustained. I want to say thank you very much. Happy Juneteenth and happy Pride Month. It's always inspiring and informative to have a conversation with you. I'm so happy to do it. And thank you. Thank you, Matt, for always just using your your platform to tell stories and to talk to people who so often aren't aren't, aren't centered in the the broader media landscape. And so thank you seriously for, for what you're doing and always happy to talk to you. This is Pridecast Live on KPFK 90.7 FM, presented by KPFK, The Blunt Post with Vic, and the Stonewall Democratic Club. It's an 11-hour special Pride program to commemorate Pride Month. And the program that you're listening to right now is called Politics, Pride, and Power by host Matthew Breen. Hello, Los Angeles. Welcome back. I'm your host for this hour, Matthew Breen. We are talking Pride, Politics, and Power. My next guest is the first openly gay elected state legislator in Pennsylvania history, Representative Brian Sims. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Matt, for having me. And thank you for saying that there's openly LGBT. I, I <laughs> that as, as much like gilding and marble as ours does had, had gay people for all time. I'm just the out one. Well, yeah, exactly. We know that there have been plenty of folks who have been closeted in the past um, who have held office. You know, I hope their history's come out. That we're still holding office. I hope that history's come out one day in a good way. But thank you for being uh, out. Uh, yeah, thank my parents. I was raised <laughs> by people that, that let me know that I could live the life I, I wanted to live and was entitled to. That's great. I've been talking with a couple of our other guests today. Um, Danielle Moody said to say hello. It's been too long since you spoke. She wanted me to pass sure. along a hello. And your colleague uh, in the General Assembly, Malcolm Kenyatta. Um, Malcolm Kenyatta. Sure. Yeah, spoken to both of them and had great conversations. Um, and I did confess to both of them that Pride this month for me started off feeling very rough. The COVID crisis, you know, the er- eruption in, in protest over the deaths of so many Black Americans in the hand of racist hands of racist police, it just left me feeling angry and exhausted. And so I've been trying to think into our you know Pride origins past to sort of access that the anger and the exhaustion that those folks at the Stonewall Bar must have felt in 1969 uh, at the hands of, of police harassment and, and trying to see the through line. And I'm wondering if you've been thinking about that and how your Pride Month has been for you so far. Um, I, I, it's funny how, as I was listening to you explain sort of how you, how you have felt about Pride Month, I feel the same way. I mean, I'll tell you, as a cis white guy, Watching everything that's happening right now on the civil rights front, I'm a, I'm a civil rights attorney by trade, and watching everything that is happening is sort of 
reinvigorated my sense of pride, reminded me what pride is all about. Um, you, all you have to do is put on social media right now to be reminded that pride was a riot and that it, what it took for us to gain the rights that we have now and what it will take for us to gain the rest of the rights and everyone around us to gain equality is, is a good solid fight. And, you know, we can, we can remind each other that, that kindness is, is the, the most appropriate approach, that we can remind each other that, that goodness and happiness are sort of what we're about. But unfortunately, no civil rights in this country, or as far as I can tell anywhere else, were, were given to people by kinding them. They were fought for. And so pride for me is, has been quite a reminder of what that fight looks like. Yeah, or even granted by sort of rational discussion, <laughs> intellectual, like, you know, a, a, approach. It, it, it's crazy how often demonstrations um, and, you know, vocal, loud, insistent, sustained protest are really the only thing in this country that um, produces such seismic changes. Seem to get it done? Yeah. Sure. I mean, think about the major civil rights battles of this, of this country. The, the first and second wave of feminism from starting with you know, suffragettes, um, the, the traditional civil rights movement, the contemporary civil rights movement, the LGBTQ civil rights movement, um, they've all had two things in common, um, a lot of fight and trans people. And so, you know, when I look around right now, it's sort of what the battleground looks like. It's easy to feel very inspired. I was talking with a friend who, like I do, remembers the demonstrations and riots after the Rodney King beating. And we were just both heartened by the images coming out of protests across this country. These protests are multi-ethnic, multicultural men and women of all racial backgrounds. Uh, and that is not what we saw in the uh, Rodney King riots. The country has moved. The people have moved. And it's one of those things that gave me some, a sense of optimism. You know, it's, what's interesting about that is that one of the things that data tells us is that in this country, historically, when things have been bad for lots of people, more people open their eyes. More people are aware of what it looks like. When things boom, um, when everybody's doing great, it's, it's easy to sort of focus on yourself, to focus on your own prosperity, to focus on your own family. But there's no argument that these last four years have been just atrocious for all of us, uh, perhaps the, the, the sort of worst in contemporary American history. And one, perhaps, of the, the benefits of it, or one of the good things that's come out of it, is that more and more Americans are looking around at each other and saying, wait a second, you're not my enemy. You're not the person that's taking from me. You're not the person that's, that's causing me this hardship or this strife. We're in this together. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, 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 I hate to think that it was that level of economic and social hardship that caused so many white Americans to, to, to finally recognize what black Americans have been telling us for I mean, hell, the, 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 uh, the original civil rights battles in America are over 50 years old, mm -hmm. but, but we are hearing them finally. And there is something sort of quintessentially Americana about all of our civil rights battles sort of merging at a time and place when we can do the most about it. It's a personal hobby horse of mine uh, uh, because I grew up in a household with parent, two public school teachers as parents that um, the idea that we you know, have essentially defunded education over the years um, that we have deprioritized, you know, uh, civics responsibility as a as a as a function of our education, and that of course we've never actually taught our real histories. Th that those are, are enormous deficiencies that lead to Trumpism, that lead to the kind of state that the GOP is in right now with regard to the head of the party. The ability so, to dupe people 
the ability to tell people things that had they had a sort of a rudimentary understanding of American politics would know better. But in, in I don't want to take anybody off the hook for their awful politics. But truly, when you're not taught your own history, when you're not taught the sort of things that form, in, in our case, the, the sort of general privileges of Americana, it's easy to believe lies about them. Absolutely. Totally agree with that. Another thing that's giving me um, some hope this month is um, from a really unexpected source, in my view, the Supreme Court, uh, two really positive, <laughs> two really positive uh, rulings this month. Support for the for the Dreamers, for the policies the Obama administration enacted that the Trump administration tried to dismantle, but more specifically uh, to the pride sort of theme that we're talking about today, the idea that existing civil rights law protects LGBTQ workers in the workplace, and that going forward, if you are fired because your employer thinks thinks or knows that you are gay or trans, you can sue for that. A remarkable decision. My question to you is. As an attorney, do you see that there will be a knock-on effect for housing, for public accommodations, for for the the, the health care uh, rollback um, regarding trans people of earlier this month? What what do you see as the future of this rollout of this ruling or the impact of this ruling? Yeah, it's a it's a it's a wonderfully important question, and I'm reminded of something that trans advocates told me when we were first pushing for. LGBTQ equality, non-discrimination in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, which we still don't have. There had been this early argument um, in Pennsylvania, as in many states, what non-discrimination includes is housing, employment, and public accommodation. Mm -hmm. Some states, it includes insurance, it includes education, it includes states and hospitals. But in our state, we grew out of the original Ethnic Intimidation Act, and it's housing, employment, and public accommodation. And there was an argument being made years ago by several Republicans who wanted to support equality in in, uh, in housing and employment, but not public accommodations. And I remember a trans advocate saying to me, if you could make sure that I was secure in my job, and if you could make sure I was secure in my home, I would be there to fight to make sure I was secure in public accommodations. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I try to remember that when we see these sort of micro wins or um, smaller wins. Mm-hmm. And, and yes, I mean, I, not, to, not to dismiss this, this is perhaps the largest or the most important LGBT Supreme Court decision of the modern era. It's mm-hmm. more important to me than certainly than, than the marriage equality cases. Yeah. But until people can be secure in their homes, until people can be secure applying to college or sitting at a restaurant or, or even sitting at a park bench, how secure are they really? And yes, it's important that people can't be fired from their jobs. Um, but they are still fired from their jobs. And all that this Supreme Court case says is that now they have recourse to do something about it. And so, yeah, I, I feel very good about it, but it is also a reminder me. I'm a, I'm a policymaker. I'm a lawmaker. And the laws in my own state are insufficient. And this is a reminder of how short we fall. So given that they're pointing to the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which encompasses m- more than just employment, well, this will sort of, this will give cover to the idea that sex discrimination means gay and trans discrimination as well. It'll, it'll be broader. No question about it. I mean, even in, considering the recent um, statements we've heard from the Department of Health and Human Services, from the, the White House, about trans people seeking health care and how this impacts that, mm-hmm. uh, the lawyer in me says, first and foremost, we don't know. And it's not that we, we don't know because we, we, we shouldn't know. We know because we can't know mm-hmm. until there are a lot of cases that test the breadth and scope of this ruling Really, what we have is hope, except that that hope right now is 
is more founded in reality than ever before. These last two decisions about DACA and about non-discrimination were written by conservative members of the court. And, you know, I, I will tell you that most cases that make it to the Supreme Court, especially if you're doing it as a, a liberal lawyer making a liberal argument, you couch those arguments in terms of the conservative agenda that this court seems to want to pursue. And so I wasn't entirely surprised to see that Republicans sided with the majority in this case. I was surprised to see that they wrote the opinions, and it gives me a ton of hope about the future. <laughs> Hopefully this is the Supreme Court, that if it already thinks that it's inappropriate to discriminate against a person because of their sexual orientation or gender identity and employment, they must think so about housing. They must think so about a McDonald's or a park bench, and that they're willing to say so even in the, you know, in the, in the final months of the Trump administration gives me a lot of hope. So the chief justice assigns the, the opinion writers, isn't that correct? Was this like a way to sort of stick Neil Gorsuch with like a textualist, imper- <laughs> like a textualist uh, understanding of uh, civil rights law? Is this some, was he like cornering him in a way? Possibly, I will say this. Textualism hasn't been historically good for civil rights law. Right. And he, had he heard that there was that, that Gorsuch was was contemplating a textualist approach to, to finding in favor of equality, he might have said, that's what we're looking for. Uh-huh. More likely than not, Gorsuch went to him and said, hey, I can support this. I want you to know why I support this. And Robert said, listen, I know why the liberal justices support this, but why you support this can speak volumes to um, what civil rights can look like in America. That's part of the reason I'm so excited about it. Had this been written by one of the liberal justices and, and one of the conservatives, or in this case two of the conservatives, had signed on, that wouldn't tell us nearly as much as what we know now by having them write the opinion. We are rapidly approaching a never-ending presidential uh, election campaign, end of the cycle. Um, I, you know, one of, in my views, one of the few silver linings about the COVID crisis is that campaigning has taken just generally like a backseat to, to, to other more urgent concerns. Campaigning can... can it's a substance in reality. Yes, campaigning can exhaust people, and we have a lot to deal with right now apart from that. But as a political thinker, someone uh, who is interested in, I presume, uh, getting the presumptive Democratic nominee elected and rousting uh, Donald Trump, I've been thinking about approaches, uh, a campaign approach. Biden still seems very interested in trying to move Republicans who now have decided they can't stomach Trump. Danielle Moody Mills earlier in the show was like, I'm not interested in those people. Those people, like, you know... Who we need to? Yeah, they're not interesting either. Uh, so, so who is interested in you? Are the is it the people that didn't vote last time? Like, wh- how do you? Yeah, it, that's exactly it. You know, don't, don't get me wrong. In my my job, I'm required to reach out to people who disagree with me to try to find common ground to try to uh, uh, appeal to them and maybe appease them in ways that will get them on board. But I'm when I vote, I'm not voting as a legislator. I'm voting as an American. And my my job as a voter is is to make sure that the person wins who will get us closer to the ideology and the the morals and the values that I share. When I look at sort of Americans voting over the last 12 years, what I know is we don't need to sway Trump voters. We don't. Um, You know, and I I don't want to be too harsh about this, but if you're a Trump voter right now and you still need to be swayed, screw you. you. You have watched the most racist president in American history. You have watched the president who has attacked people of disability, the LGBTQ community, our neighbors, all 
all of our alliances and, and you still need to be swayed, yeah. I'm not the person to sway you. I'm the person to tell you that you're not paying enough attention. If you are still paying attention and you haven't been swayed, screw you. More importantly, though, we can look at the two Obama elections and know that there are enough Americans who agree with you and I, who agree with Joe Biden, to get this done. Um, millions, millions more. And, you know, there's a case to be made that Hillary Clinton was the right candidate for a lot of people. She still won by three million votes. Yeah. But Barack Obama in his second election, I believe, was up six million votes, and in his first was up 10 to 11 million votes. Those voters are still out there. What we need to do is we need to get people who already agree with us to just be active on a day. We always pretend that we need to get them you know, out of their houses and up and active, and they need to be activated just like we are. We don't. What we need is we need to get people who already did something once years ago to do it again just on one day, mm-hmm. and that's on Election Day. And if we do, we're going to be okay. And we don't have to cater to people that took three and a half years of listening to sexism and misogyny and homophobia and xenophobia in order to do it. And I don't, I don't want to cater to those people. I don't, I don't want my politics softened by their politics. Their politics are wrong. In closing, like I'm going to give you a magic wand. I'm going to ask you two questions. The first, if you could wave the magic wand and change something about pride or how we celebrate it, what would that be? I would, I would demand that any time any of our commercial partners want to partner with us, that it comes only after they have shown us and expressed interest in who we are and advancing our issues, shy of putting a rainbow on their logo. Um, I don't want to be so negative as to say that, that when you know businesses are exploring what it looks like to be a part of their community, that they should also explore what it looks like to support pride. But it's not enough to slap a rainbow on the side of a Coke can or on a Comcast label and, and, in order for us to think that you support us. And similarly, if you are supporting us while you are simultaneously supporting the people that want to do us the most harm, you're not just not our friends, you're our enemies. And I want people to know that. Too much, you know, there, there have been too many opportunities where, you know, cash-strapped pride events have been willing to accept and needed to accept the support of organizations or companies that really weren't so supportive of us. They just wanted to support us on the most visible days. And frankly, we have too many real partners. We have too many of our own businesses for us to think it's okay anymore to accept a, a rainbow logo while we're also accept, accepting Republican and Trump donations. Same magic wand, if you could change one thing about politics in the United States, sweeping question, I realize, if you could change one thing about politics in the United States, what would that be? Oh, this is actually an easy one for me, believe it or not. Um, I live in Pennsylvania. I live in the state where the, the rules of modern American contemporary democracy were written and agreed to, and yet we don't teach them anymore. Um, I know so much about the impact of women, first-generation immigrants, people of color, and LGBTQ people on politics. But I've had to learn it myself. I've had to research it myself. I've had to seek out that education. And the truth is, it's the kind of thing that we should be teaching. If the average fifth, sixth, and seventh grader knew how important uh, electoral politics was in America, they knew how valuable the voices that participated in it were, by the time they were 17 and a half, 17 and three quarters, just before their 18th birthday, They'd be chomping at the bit to register to vote the same way that they were chomping at the bit to register to get the driver's license. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm convinced of it. Every single year we go about all these campaign politics where we urge young people to get involved because we know how valuable and how powerful they are. But it's true of every single demographic. They just don't know it. That's what I would change. That's great. I love it. 
Representative Brian Sims, I want to thank you so much for chatting with me today. It's always a lively and informative conversation with you. I want to wish you a happy Juneteenth. I want to wish you a happy Pride. And thank you so much again. Matt, thank you so much for having me. Happy Pride. That was Politics, Pride, and Power by Matt Breen for Pridecast Live, interviewing queer politicians of today. Thank you, Matt. Because you were born this way, baby. KPFK is Southern California's only independent progressive radio station. We are non-commercial and listener-supported. We do not take money from corporations, so they don't dictate our programming. That means we depend on you for our funding. You help us stay on the air. Right now, we need your help. Please contribute today to help make programs such as Pridecast Live and my show, The Blunt Post with Vic, possible. Go to kpfk.org and contribute today. Thank you.